Hi, guys. We wanted to take a moment to let you know that IntroVets Podcast has got merchandise. Woohoo! We are so excited about this. Mm-hmm. We've got four shirts to choose from, a logo shirt, some great catchphrase shirts, and also, by popular demand, the Feline Chili Pepper Rating System artwork by Stacy Scrimpture. We've got that on a shirt. We've also got the Chili Pepper artwork and posters and stickers, and we're really excited about it. To order the merchandise, go to our website. It's introvets.com. Click on the merchandise link at the top of the page. And we've partnered with Carrie at Comice Oh My to be able to offer this. Deadline to order is June 16th. So don't forget. I'm Lauren, and I'm a veterinarian. I'm JJ, and I'm a veterinary technician. And you're listening to Introvets, a veterinary podcast by introverts with high-functioning anxiety. Welcome, everybody, to Introvets Podcast. Yay, hello. Today, we have a case for you. As always, when we present cases on the podcast, we conceal the identity of the patient, the owner, and the veterinarian who originally saw the case. Some details of the case that don't affect the outcome or the diagnosis might have been changed to help protect the identity of the patient that we are discussing. So, JJ, you got a case for me? I do. All right. Tell me about your patient. Okay. So patient is a five-year-old male castrated retriever mix. Spot was transferred to the emergency clinic by his regular veterinarian for continued care. He had been out hiking with the owner and suddenly collapsed. The owner rushed him to the veterinarian. The owner was concerned about a snake bite since this occurred during the spring. And the owner had seen a snake on their hike, but didn't see the snake actually bite the dog. Okay. So on presentation, Spot could ambulate with assistance, but he preferred to lay still. He had pale gums. No wounds were found. Temperature was 104 degrees. And here we're talking about when he presented to the RDVM, like before he went to the ER. Yes. Okay. Well, that's interesting. You know, there are a lot of differentials for collapse. Mm -hmm. We've got a middle-aged large breed dog who collapsed on a hike. I mean, certainly I have seen my share of snake bites and uh, they can sometimes get really bad systemic symptoms like pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. So the fact that the owner saw the snake, it's springtime, they're hiking, like that is a lot of circumstantial evidence supporting <laughs> a potential snake bite. So I think we have to definitely put that on the list. Mm-hmm. Yep. Other things that I think about, I mean, heat stroke, mm-hmm. uh, springtime, Heat stroke is more common in the spring. We were out hiking. You know, usually it's in those first few really warm days that we'll get heat stroke patients come in. Mm -hmm. Plus, it's kind of the right demographic of dog, like a young retriever type dog, you know. Mm -hmm. Been spending the winter indoors and first warm couple days, go outside, not used to all the exercise. And Mm -hmm. it's a big possibility. Very possible. Anything that could cause a collapse when you're not on a hike could definitely also cause a collapse when you're on a hike. Mm -hmm. So I think about cardiovascular disease, okay? Um, What else, JJ? Allergic or anaphylactic could be possible. Absolutely. You're outside, something like that, stung by a bee maybe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you can also have anaphylactoid reactions to snake bites, I'm pretty sure, too. Mm -hmm. So, you know, maybe leave that on the list, too. You know, some sort of weird coincidence, like maybe the dog has been, I don't know, secretly had some metabolic problem. Like say he was diabetic and he 
he like his body was like this hike is the last fucking straw and now i am collapsing because you know when yeah. you're really sick from something like that mm-hmm. and then like bink that last domino falls and now they're really fucking sick yeah. so really like a broad range of things that we could potentially have going on mm-hmm. okay all right uh, what happened next the regular veterinarian was less concerned about a snake bite due to the lack of obvious clinical signs like swelling or a wound. Um, the vet was more worried about heat stroke since okay. we did have a little bit of an elevated temperature. Okay. Yeah. The 104 degrees. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so they started some cooling measures, um, IV catheter, crystalloid fluids at shock rates. Okay. Uh, gave serenia to prevent vomiting. And then they misted the pet with cool water and placed him in front of a fan. Okay. I mean, I think that's reasonable. Most heat stroke cases present with a temperature over 105 degrees, but they can present with a normal temp. They can present subnormal just depending on like the circumstances and what all cooling the owner did ahead of time and things like that. So Mm -hmm. the temp being 104 doesn't rule it out. Yeah. Like at all. So, okay. Well, I'm imagining that we're going to want to do some tests here Mm -hmm. on this patient. So with the information that we have so far and the top differential being heat stroke, um, I would definitely want to do a minimum database. So that's going to be a complete blood count, a chemistry profile, and a urinalysis like we've talked about before. Mm -hmm. I'd love to see a coagulation profile on the patient um, because... Uh, a lot of dogs that have heat stroke will actually have abnormalities in their clotting times. Sometimes that's not available in general practice, though. So, you know, we don't know if that's the case here. With this case, the way that it's presented, I would want to do a blood smear because in, you know, if we were worried about heat stroke, back, if you remember back to our heat stroke episode that was like last season, If you do a blood smear and you see a high number of nucleated red blood cells, then there is unfortunately a higher risk of death from heat stroke. So I would want to do that just to see, Mm -hmm. am I seeing those nucleated red blood cells and things like that? So I think we're doing a good job so far on our supportive care and our cooling measures, but like we need to get some tests. So did we do any tests next? Yep. Okay. Um, Did a CBC which showed a mild anemia and a moderate thrombocytopenia. Okay. Um, so we've got a low red blood cell count mm-hmm. and a low platelet count. Yep. Okay. A coagulation profile performed in-house showed that the prothrombin time was mildly prolonged, which means it's elevated. Okay. So abnormal clotting. Mm-hmm. Okay. And they did do a chemistry profile, which had no significant findings. Uh, it was the end of the work day, so the pet was transferred to the emergency clinic for continued care okay. for the presumptive heat stroke. Well, that's not that uncommon. I mean, a lot of the times, you know, in general practice, you will get kind of emergency type cases that, you know, you can handle until you're leaving. But like this case, the way it's described, you can't just like be like, bye, mm-hmm. sending you home. Like yeah. definitely transfer into the ER, I think, is a, is a smart move on this. Mm-hmm. Um Uh, We're going to head to the ER. I mean, I think that's very reasonable. How did things go at the ER? So Spot remained stable during the trip to the ER. He presented to the ER on a stretcher. Temperature was normal at 101.5 degrees Fahrenheit. Okay. Further cooling measures were not instituted since we had a normal temperature. Yeah, it's a good idea. Like, Mm -hmm. uh, remember, when we get down approaching that normal range and, and people vary with what they recommend, but I think kind of the most common one would be 
102.5. Like if mm-hmm. we're getting sub 103, we need to stop that cooling. Yep. So good call, ER. Mm-hmm. Uh, good job. And uh, on an examination, the PET scums looked a little pale and the patient seemed agitated. They noted that the abdomen seemed distended, but okay. it was difficult to tell for sure since the uh, since he was laying on a stretcher. Okay. This is the part where, as the ER vet, you know, I work ER sometimes, like, it's always really tempting to be like, the regular vet has already worked this up. They already have a diagnosis. I've got a thousand other patients happening. Like, things are really high-paced and crazy at the ER. I'm just going to go ahead and admit them based on whatever the RDVM had said and not immediately evaluate them. Like, that's, there's always the temptation because all hell is generally breaking loose at all times at the mm-hmm. ER, in my experience. But what I really like about what this veterinarian did is that they started from the beginning and reassessed, and they looked at the whole patient again to make sure that nothing major had changed. So we've got this distended abdomen. Well, that is not consistent with heat stroke. Mm-hmm. So I think that we need to look at this distended abdomen further. What I would like to do if I'm at the ER, I don't really know what you call it. I call it like abdominal percussion, you know, like (laughs) tap, 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 tap with your fingers. Mm -hmm. And you can kind of see like, boom, if they have fluid in the abdomen, it it looks like a waterbed, what they call a fluid wave. So I would want to give it a tap, tap, tap tamperoo with my finger and just see, like, Mm -hmm. could I see anything? Okay. And for the longest time when as a veterinarian, I didn't just have access to an ultrasound at all times, which is like... Most of my young career, the ultrasound was like a referral in hours away. So I got really good at abdominal palpation and blunt, blunt, blunt tapping. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> but now in the modern day, I then would reach for my ultrasound probe mm-hmm. and do what the emergency critical care specialist, Dr. Nobles, recommends, which is use the ultrasound as an extension of every physical exam. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so... So I would want to pop that ultrasound probe onto that tummy and see what we find. Maybe x-rays, in my experience for distended abdomens, ultrasound, like your fast ultrasound is going to give you way more information than an x-ray will. Because if you've got fluid in the abdomen, the x-ray is just going to look like a big gray blob and it doesn't really help you. Yeah, it's less invasive too. Do you mean like moving the patient, mm-hmm. like having to restrain them? and Position them. Exactly. You're right. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Once you get good at ultrasound, like you're comfortable with it and where everything normally is, you could just leave that patient laying right there on that stretcher like it presented and just shave a little bit, pop that ultrasound probe on there, boom. Like Mm -hmm. you can pretty much just see really quickly without making them less comfortable. You're absolutely right. Okay. Well, what happened next? So they did perform a, a fast ultrasound. Yes. Yep. And free fluid was noted. Oh, no. Yeah. Uh, heat stroke does not cause fluid in the abdomen. <laughs> right now, I'm at an abdominal effusion. I'm a, I'm like, something else is going on. Mm-hmm. It's not heat stroke. Mm-mm. Something else is happening. Yeah, they did do a abdominocentesis. Okay, so they tapped the belly with a needle. Mm-hmm. And found blood. Oh, no. Not good. Okay. So this is a hemoabdomen. Mm-hmm. Hemoabdomen is the term that we use for just blood accumulating inside the abdomen. And it is pretty uncool because the things that cause blood to accumulate in the abdomen 
are all shitty mm-hmm. type of things. All no bueno. Right. All of them are like, oh boy, we need to fucking intervene super fast. Yeah. Okay. Well, so when we're thinking about hemoabdomen, we need to say, you know, like right off the bat, in hemoabdomen cases, there is a, a kind of a, a high incidence of it being related to a bleeding tumor. Okay. Mm-hmm. <sighs> so getting blood on a tap does not mean 100% you have diagnosed hemangiosarcoma. That is not the situation. But anytime that you're dealing with a hemoabdomen, now is the time to start talking with the owners about things like prognosis. Mm -hmm. Because unfortunately, there is a high incidence of cancer creating this sort of thing. Now, it's not the only thing. Okay, so I'm thinking other causes of hemoabdomen. If the dog got into rat poison and is bleeding, It could be some other organ bleeding. So one time I had a hemoabdomen that ended up being an adrenal tumor. That was uncool. Mm. I also had a hemoabdomen one time that ended up being a a renal mass, a kidney mass. Also uncool. And then there are benign conditions. So I've had at least two dogs over the course of my career that came in with a bleeding splenic mass that ended up being a benign bleeding splenic mass. And the dog didn't have cancer. Uh, but they did need immediate, you know, intervention for that bleeding mm-hmm. mass. So anything that could make the pet bleed abnormally, like rat poison, could also create blood accumulation in the abdomen. JJ, what else would be a differential diagnosis here? Possibly some sort of traumatic event, maybe. Like Absolutely, if yeah. the dog fell while they were hiking and they thought it was maybe not a big deal, but injured something internally. In order to damage the spleen to that degree, like, it would have to be something, like, pretty obvious, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, There's something maybe the dog could have had happen that the owner wasn't aware of, maybe. Absolutely. Liver disease. So, again, because the liver produces the substances that your body needs to form clots. So, if you had really advanced liver disease, then you can have a coagulopathy, meaning you don't clot normally. Mm-hmm. I think that's a pretty comprehensive list. So any type of bleeding mass, whether it's neoplastic or benign, and then anything that could create inappropriate levels of bleeding in the body could result in blood accumulating there. And then, as JJ said, trauma, although trauma, I think, seems less likely in this Mm -hmm. case. But we can't rule out the other things just yet. So for this case, then, now that we have this surprise... After we talk to the owners, the next thing that we need to get them to okay is to run a comparison of the PCV, that's the concentration of red blood cells, from the belly fluid, so the blood you took out of the abdomen, and the peripheral blood. And if the concentration of red blood cells, the PCV of what you're removing from the abdomen, is higher than the concentration of red blood cells in the periphery, then that means that there is an active bleed happening. Sometimes you can have an abdominal effusion that looks kind of red-colored, but it won't actually be true blood. So that's a way that you can sort of differentiate. Is there an active bleed? And how many red blood cells do we have hanging out? So the uh, PCV of the blood in the abdomen was higher than that of the peripheral blood, confirming an active bleed. Okay, that's no good. Okay, so we know we have an active bleed happening right meow, okay? 
After we talk with the owners about what that means, we definitely need to provide some continued support, IV fluids. You know, the patient already has an IV in and things like that. This is a patient that doesn't need to be in a cage. He really needs to be like at a treatment table with people continually monitoring. And then we need to talk to the owners about like rapid intervention. So the next things that I would want to do will be to try to figure out why this is happening, right? So we already have coag- coagulation profile. It did show a mild elevation in the prothrombin time. With rodenticide toxicity, you would expect both the PT and the PTT to be elevated. And it's not in this case. Does that rule it out? Oh, gosh. I'm going to say it would make it very far down on the list for me, especially if the owner was like, no, we do not have a history of rodenticide exposure. I mean, sometimes owners don't know, but like that to me, that would be a good enough. You know, there's not elevation of both. And the owner says there's no history of rodenticide ingestion. So really the most common thing is a bleeding structure in the abdomen. So I would want to take my ultrasound and look around that abdomen and see if I can find a tumor. Sometimes ultrasound is difficult if you're not like a specialist or someone who does a lot of it. When there's so much fluid in the abdomen, it can make the organs look funny. Mm -hmm. Um, Things that are normally hugged up against one another are now floating around in this Mm -hmm. soup, you know? Yeah. And so it is like an acquired skill to be Mm -hmm. able to see differences with all that fluid in there, but it is super doable. And then the other thing that I would think about doing in this case, you know, of course, as long as the pet is stable, is taking some radiographs of the chest. And the reason that I would want to do that is because if metastatic lesions are present in the chest, if we see a nodular pattern in the chest on x-ray, that is going to make us think this is cancerous and it's going to make us worry that we're not going to have as good of a prognosis. So that's really important information to collect if we can before making the decision to do a surgery. Mm -hmm. So they did do radiographs of the thorax. And unfortunately, it revealed a nodular pattern and metastasis was suspected. Oh, gosh. So they did go ahead and elect to euthanize. Okay. And then the necropsy confirmed sarcoma of the spleen. Oh, okay. So this was a dog that fit that two-thirds and two-thirds mm-hmm. rule. So let's go over exactly what hemangiosarcoma is. Hemangiosarcoma is a type of cancer that originates from the vascular endothelium. So like, if you think about like the lining of the blood vessel, okay? Now the spleen is uh, really one of the more common primary t- tumor sites. So usually it originates in the spleen, but it can originate in other areas, okay? So the heart, particularly the right atrium, the subcutis, which is like under the skin, and the liver, actually. I've not I've never seen a liver one in real life, but apparently that, that can happen. So when it's on the spleen or it's in the heart, it's not like a tumor of spleen cells or heart cells. It's really a tumor of vascular cells. It can technically originate anywhere in the whole body because everywhere in the body has blood vessels. Mm-hmm. So we don't really know like why hemangiosarcoma develops. There's probably some genetic factors which I have seen just anecdotally in families of breeding dogs that I personally know of, where it's like 
the father and the grandfather, you know, all died mm-hmm. of X, Y, Z, you know, or whatever. And then this dog will have it too. Okay. Mm-hmm. So it's always important, I think, to ask when you're dealing with a hemoabdomen or if, say, say the, the hemangiosarcoma is of the heart, usually what you'll see is bleeding into the pericardial sac. So if you're seeing pericardial fluid there and you tap it in its blood and, you know, that's one of the things that we want to ask is like, do, do you know anything about your dog's family history? And in some cases they don't, but unfortunately it probably is genetic to some degree. Now in humans, some other factors like exposure to arsenical compounds, vinyl chloride, things like that have been implicated in the development of hemangiosarcoma, but like we don't know whether that has anything to do with the development in dogs. When splenic hemangiosarcoma develops, it has the ability to spread really rapidly, unfortunately. Greater than 60%, like we think like 67%-ish of dogs end up developing metastatic disease. This tumor can metastasize either via hematogenous routes, so like spreading via Mm -hmm. the blood, or by intra-abdominal implantation. So like it just hang, it just like floats around in the abdomen is like, woo, I've attached to this other organ. Yay. Okay. Lungs are the most common metastatic site. That's why uh, I think it's a great idea to check radiographs before you go into a major surgery on a hemoabdomen just to let owners know about prognosis. But there are some other places that it could metastasize. So it metastasizes to the lungs about 65% of the time, but it can also go to the kidneys. That's about 55% of the time. And the liver, which is somewhere between like 40 and 55% of the time. That right atrial hemangiosarcoma that in the heart that we talked about earlier is present in anywhere between 5 and 25% of the dogs at the time of diagnosis. So that means like when you have a bleeding splenic tumor, a percentage of those are already are also going to have a tumor in their right atrium. So it's a good idea to look for that. And then metastatic sites have also been reported to be the muscle, brain, spinal cord, diaphragm, adrenal glands subcutaneous tissues and lymph nodes, again, because this spreads easily Mm -hmm. and it arises from blood vessels and blood vessels are everywhere. It's just kind of a bad, a bad cancer to have. Staging criteria has been developed. So stage one is going to be an unruptured tumor. It's going to be a small, less than five centimeters and confined to the spleen. Stage two is a tumor that is greater or equal to five centimeters. So a little bigger or ruptured and or with regional lymph node involvement with no distant metastasis. And stage three can be any size of tumor with distant metastasis or invading adjacent structures. So in this dog, it would be stage three because Mm -hmm. we found the metastatic lesions in the chest. Yeah. What are some common findings with this type of thing that you would find with a physical exam or with lab work? So... The history can really be anything. I sort of think of hemangiosarcoma as like any time a dog is acting fucking weird, I'm like, do you have hemangiosarcoma? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, and I'll just throw this out, especially if it's like a golden retriever. Okay. Yeah. If I've got a golden retriever and it's got any type of age on it at all, like if it's like more than two or something, okay, like if it's even approaching middle age and the owners are like, They're just not doing right. I'm like, abdominal ultrasound, schedule it, right? Mm -hmm. Cardiac ultrasound, schedule it. 
because like it's just so damn common mm-hmm. um in my experience in that particular breed but i've certainly seen it in all types okay so mm-hmm. for me it would be any type of weird bullshit that a dog is doing where they're just like they don't they seem to kind of feel bad well now they kind of snapped out of it for a few days now they're feeling bad again and then we usually see that in my experience again i don't know that this has been studied but in my experience, a waxing and waning presentation where when the owner thinks about it, well, no, they hadn't been 100% right. You know, they collapsed today and that was weird and that's why I brought them in. But really, they've been kind of going on and off their food for three weeks and they've been like not wanting to go for a walk at night sometimes and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And it's like that that tumor will sort of bleed and then clot and bleed and then clot. And when it's actively bleeding, they're like, "Woo, I don't feel very good. Right. And then it clots and they're kind of OK. And then you get this cyclic presentation leading up to a major event. That's what I have seen the most. Again, that is anecdotal on Mm -hmm. my end, okay? But so you're going to see any type of stuff. Lethargy, feeling weak, just not wanting to eat good. And then on physical exam, sometimes they're real good at being like, I'm fine. I'm I'm not doing anything. So even on physical exam, if I'm not seeing anything right now, it might just be that the, that damn thing isn't bleeding right now. Yeah. I'm like, I'm telling you, like on a big dog that's ADR, I'm like abdominal ultrasound, like boom, right away. Yeah. We can do it today, you know. Go ahead. I would think, too, maybe if the dog appears to be gaining weight or if uh, you notice that they're, if you keep up with their weight often and notice it's going up, yep. but they the diet hasn't changed mm-hmm. or if you actually reduce the diet to combat it and it's not getting better. Yeah. And that's with any type of fluid accumulation, right? It, mm-hmm. Sometimes owners will be like, I think my dog is gaining weight, but only in the abdomen. And when you look at it, you're like, Oh, mm. I don't, I don't think this is fat accumulation. Like this isn't yeah. eating too much. Like we got a problem going on, but you're absolutely right. JJ fluid, fluid is heavy. Mm-hmm. And so these dogs will potentially weigh a little bit more. Yeah. So when you're having uh, an active bleed, you're going to see weak, you're going to see pale mucous membranes, they're going to kind of feel shitty. But if if they're not, then you might just be able to feel it when you're palpating the abdomen. So you could feel an abdominal mass, maybe. Sometimes you won't, though, okay? You're going to see the distended abdomen, like the veterinarian in our case. You're going to tap, tap, tap with your finger. You're going to look with the with the ultrasound, okay? to make sure that we don't have a problem. Mm-hmm. And then sometimes you'll see uh, petechia or echomotic hemorrhages. That's from a thrombocytopenia. Now, that's not a platelet issue. That's like all the platelets in the body are going to clot this thing, and there's not enough in circulation. So we got like a relative thrombocytopenia, and that was present in this case, that mm-hmm. not the petechia yet, but the numbers were going down. Then acute collapse, but that's a, a top one. Anytime mm-hmm. a patient is just acutely collapsed, mm-hmm. I think it has to be on our list of things, mm-hmm. which I don't think we put it on our list of things we were going through earlier. So that was my bad. But anyway, we, it needs to be on the list. It needs to be on the list. I guess it could have been covered in the umbrella term of like something weird happening inside the body that created a collapse. Mm-hmm. But like, uh, I don't know if we'll count that. And then some patients can be completely asymptomatic at the time that you're looking at them. You just want to make sure that you remember that part. So when you're looking at tests, a blood count, we're usually going to see an anemia. Again, that's a decreased red blood cell count. We're also going to see thrombocytopenia a lot of the time. Okay, that's in 75 to 90% of dogs. You might also see an increased white blood cell count. 
The reason is that the bone marrow has been like, I got to fucking catch up, man. And it's like trying to produce more cell types and it's kind of through the white blood cells out there mm-hmm. in addition. Okay. <laughs> so you might see an increased uh, white blood cell count. Now, when you're looking at your blood smear, like Dr. Kate Baker told us to do anytime you got an anemic dog, um, you're going to see changes in the red blood cell morphology in about 80% of cases. Those abnormalities are going to include schistocytes, acanthocytes, and poikilocytes. And then you might also see nucleated red blood cells. JJ, do you want to define what those are? So a schistocyte is a red blood cell that is irregularly shaped, can be jagged, tends to have like two pointed ends. So almost looks like a moon with okay. that's not a full, obviously. And it has like the two points on the end. Like a crescent moon? Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay, and a uh, acanthocyte, those are also known as spur cells. They're dense and shrunken. They tend to have like uh, spikes on the outside. So they may still have a circular appearance, but they just have like, looks like they have little spikes around the outside. Okay. But they'll be smaller, kind of shrunken looking. Okay. And the poikilocytes are going to be pretty much any red blood cell that's got a uh, shape other than round. So they can be kind of flat looking. They can be oblong they can look like a teardrop that you're just not your typical red blood cell shape and a nucleated red blood cell is pretty much what it is says it's a red blood cell that has a nucleus and they normally don't in mammals so they're pretty obvious they have a nice purpley bluey stain that shows up when the stain slides like right in the center right in the center yep it's like a big eyeball looking at you so when you have your anemia case you're going to look at the blood smear and make dr kate baker happy yes okay now on a biochemistry profile you might not see anything okay but some abnormalities that you could see would be hypoproteinemia so low protein hypoalbuminemia low albumin you could see increased alkaline phosphatase or alanine aminotransferase, so that's ALP and ALT. And you might see azotemia, uh, that's increased urea, nitrogen, and creatinine. So, you know, if you're looking at chemistry profile and you're seeing like, oh, we got some azotemia going on, or we've got some elevated liver enzymes, don't get distracted and in, in <laughs> don't rule out a, an abdominal mass that's bleeding because that could still be happening mm-hmm. in there. So now radiographs of the abdomen, if if it's a bleeding and there's a lot of blood in there, honestly, it's probably going to be a big gray blob. That's Mm -hmm. my experience again. But uh, you should be able to see, if you're extremely talented, an abdominal mass somewhere in the cranial to mid-abdomen. And then a loss of serosal detail because of the free fluid in the abdomen, okay, Uh, if if that's present. What it kind of reminds me of is if, like, you had a fishbowl full of dark gray murky water yeah and there's something that's in the fishbowl that presses up against the side of it you might see like <laughs> that <laughs> that little thing but the rest of it's just the murky water <laughs> yes yeah, i mean that's accurate that's accurate remind me to tell you about the the abandoned aquarium with the shark it's a long story anyway so Ew. okay gross but it's like really okay we have to talk about it now okay at the end of the episode do not let me forget mm-hmm. to tell you about the abandoned aquarium with the creepy shark thing so then thoracic radiographs mm-hmm. are performed any time you suspect a splenic hemangiosarcoma, and that's prior to recommending splenectomy, okay? Like we talked about earlier, the reason is that 
dogs with gross pulmonary metastasis. Now, what that what does that mean? That means you can see them with your naked eye. Okay, mm-hmm. if you take your, a radiogram, if you take a radiograph of a dog's chest and you don't see a nodular pattern, that does not mean metastatic lesions are not there. They could be microscopic, and there's a certain number of cells clustered together that have to be. Like there's a certain density of cell clustering that you have to have to be able to physically see changes on radiographs. And I don't remember off the top of my head what that number is, but just mm-hmm. know that that number is not one cell. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, um, but if you're having a dog that's got grossly visible pulmonary metastasis on radiographs, they're considered to have a grave prognosis. And so putting them through surgery, you know, you really have to have to think about that pretty hard. Yeah. We talked about how when you're taking x-rays of the chest, metastatic lesions might be there, but you just not be able might not be able to see them yet. Mm-hmm. And one study showed that 22% of dogs with splenic hemangiosarcoma that had pulmonary metastatic disease, you couldn't see them on the x-ray. I think it would be good to have an oncologist on the podcast when when we can when one can spare the time. I know they're busy these days. Uh, but to talk about like advances in chemotherapy and things like that, because I know mm-hmm. there have been some since I was in veterinary school for sure. But in general, just surgery alone doesn't carry a great prognosis. It's mm-hmm. usually, I mean, these if you have hemangiosarcoma of the spleen, even if you do emergency life-saving surgery to take out that bleeding spleen, which is what they need, they will succumb to this disease almost universally. Now, how quickly? Depends on the dog. But unfortunately, even with emergency intervention and surgery and even full-course chemotherapy, a cure is not really something that we expect in these guys. Mm -hmm. So you're absolutely right there. So ultrasound, JJ. The magical thing. Ultrasound has been shown to be superior to radiographs for identifying splenic masses and for screening for potential metastatic disease. I did not know that part. So if you're really good with the ultrasound, always put it on there. Always put it on the chest. Make sure you don't see any weird bullshit going on. And get good at the ultrasound. That's true. That's true. Get good at the ultrasound. Like Dr. Noble said, ultrasound never killed anybody. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like it's a super safe thing. So mm-hmm. just pick it up and learn to use it. So now we talked a little bit about coagulation tests. This particular case that we presented had coag pan, had a coag panel run in-house, mostly, I think, because they were worried about heat stroke. But most patients with hemangiosarcoma of the spleen have changes in at least one parameter of the coagulation cascade, such as uh, PT, prothrombin time, and then partial prothrombin time, or D-dimers, and they might have decreased fibrinogen. Around 50% of dogs with uh, hemangiosarcoma have disseminated intravascular coagulopathy, or DIC, Mm -hmm. which we haven't talked a lot about on the podcast, but I'm just going to say that's bad. Mm -hmm. It's basically your blood is clotting inside your body in all of the areas of your body, and that is not good. Nope, it's not. And in one study... Dogs with splenic hemangiosarcoma had significantly increased PT, decreased fibrinogen, and increased D-dimers and decreased platelet counts compared to dogs that had benign splenic hematoma. Okay, so we're talking about a group of dogs that all had splenic tumors and were all bleeding. The cancerous, the hemangiosarcoma ones, 
had changes in the coagulation profiles that their benign tumor bleeding friends did not have. So that could be another way to try to differentiate. Okay. Before surgery. Let's see. Um, You'll, you know, talk to the owner about having a heart ultrasound because a lot of times there is a right atrial mass. Um, They're not, not, you know, I think we said what, five to 25% of cases. Yeah. So, I mean, it's possible. Yeah. If they Um, start bleeding, that's not, that's not good. Not good at all. That's not good. So the definitive diagnosis for hemangiosarcoma of the spleen is histopathology. So you've got to mm-hmm. get that spleen out. The benefit of taking the spleen out is that it stops the bleeding right then because mm-hmm. you really got two types of treatment you're thinking about in these guys. One is life-saving emergency, and the other one is what are we going to do to try to help them long-term as long as we can. So you grab the spleen out of there. With surgery, you send the spleen off, and that is how it's diagnosed. Mm-hmm. So, Dr. Greider, hemangiosarcoma is the most common neoplasm of the spleen. In dogs, yes. And anywhere between like 25 and 50% of all splenic masses are going to be hemangiosarcoma. And about how old are dogs that you find that in? Okay, so the mean age of splenic hemangiosarcoma in dogs is between 9 and 11 years. But it can really, I mean, I've seen it in young animals, okay? Mm -hmm. I mean... Even less than three years of age, some of my references say, I'll tell you that I personally have seen a case of splenic hemangiosarcoma in an 11-month-old puppy. That was a a husky mix. Mm -hmm. I mean, like, just rant, you know? Mm -hmm. So, like, you see weird bullshit. So, this is one you can't ever be like, oh, that's not it. They're too young. I mean, I've seen it in weird circumstances before. Yeah. What breeds do you see that in? Well, I mean... You know, again, everything. I've seen it one time in a Datsun, okay? Mm-hmm. But in general, we're talking medium to large-sized dogs. Uh, some breed predispositions have been noted, like German Shepherds, Golden Retrievers, and Labrador Retrievers. Yeah, small to medium-sized dogs, though, I mean, they can develop it. I have seen it happen. And there's not really a sex predilection. So yeah. males versus females, that we know of. It's But big dogs... And then those retriever breeds are overrepresented. Retrievers. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about splenectomy. Removing the spleen. Mm-hmm. We've talked about it a little bit already, but this is like the emergency management of this condition because you got to get the bleeding to stop. So splenectomy is recommended in patients that have stage one or stage two disease. It's not really recommended for dogs with distant metastasis like we talked about. Mm-hmm. It can be considered, so splenectomy reduces the risk of hemorrhage. So, like, you definitely want to remove the spleen if it's actively bleeding. But say you found a splenic tumor and it's not bleeding yet, like, should you remove it? The answer is, yeah, like, probably, okay, because it's going to remove the uh, mass so that it doesn't rupture and then create a major disaster. But splenectomy is not like a cure or a treatment. It truly is palliative care, meaning like if we have an actively bleeding spleen and we don't take it out right now, that dog will die for sure skis. And if we don't have an actively bleeding spleen and we're taking it out, we're doing it to sort of eliminate that suffering that the dog would go through if it does rupture. When you're in there on a splenectomy, you want to look just grossly and examine the other organs. And if you see any other weird stuff, take samples while you're there. So you really, you're not just getting in the spleen and going. You're actually doing a full 
abdominal exploration. And then you want to get any excisional biopsies of any suspicious lesions that you see, particularly like the omentum. That's the lacy, floppy stuff that's between the <laughs> organs is the best way that I can describe it, um, or the liver. And then, you know, this is going to be the vast majority of the time uh, an exploratory laparotomy. So like a stem to stern incision, you need to prepare owners that they're going to have a big incision. And of course, that's heel side to side, though, not lengthwise. So. <laughs> what other types of treatments are available? Well, so chemotherapy, and we're not going to get into specific drugs. I really think that we should have a uh, oncologist on at some point to talk with us about this. I, I honestly don't feel qualified anymore to talk mm -hmm. about it since now I'm so far removed from vet school. And also because things like this change a lot. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm just going to say chemotherapy and what we're using chemotherapy to do is to address the metastasis. So microscopic disease is what chemotherapy is used to manage. So if you are listening to this and you've got a patient or you have a pet, because we have some pet owners who listen to this podcast with this condition, consulting with an oncologist is my strong recommendation. There's a number of different chemotherapy protocols that have been described and even some like what could even be considered, quote, herbal remedies, but it's still technically considered chemotherapy because we're using medicine to treat cancer. That's all chemotherapy means. I feel like people get like really riled up about that word mm -hmm. in, in, in dogs, but truly it just means using medicine to treat a cancer. Like that's all it means. But so again, we'll have an oncologist on at some point to talk about these things. Talk with your veterinary oncologist about these options. <laughs> we are not oncology specialists, okay? supportive therapy that you might need. Well, a lot of these dogs are anemic and a lot of them have had really massive bleeds. So you might need to do a blood transfusion, whole blood, packed red blood cells. Uh, you might have to do that before, in or out of surgery, <laughs> like in, anywhere in that process, they mm -hmm. might need it. Plasma transfusions might be helpful, like before or during surgery for an actively bleeding patient. If we think that clotting factors have more to do with that. Like obviously a plasma transfusion doesn't replace the red blood cells, but it can help give us clotting factors. If the patient has a coagulopathy, DIC, something like that secondary, we want to treat based on recommendations for that, which is a whole big thing. I don't, we don't have time to get into it in this episode. <laughs> and then regular supportive care, IV fluid therapy, nutrition, pain management, all of those things. So after surgery, a lot of these dolls can have some abnormal cardiac rhythms. Mm -hmm. um, can we talk about that for a minute? Yes. Ventricular cardiac arrhythmias during and after a splenectomy procedure are common. Like it's not rare, mm -hmm. commonly developed. Like when, uh, when I do work for the specialty hospital, the surgeons 100% of the time will have a post-op splenectomy dog on telemetry. And so I think, you know... Stepping up onto my moderate soapbox for just a minute, one of the things that has changed majorly in my time in practice in this area that we live in, which has kind of gone from like a medium-sized town to a large-sized town in the past 15 years, and the level of veterinary care has grown like along with that. Like when I first graduated, we would do a splenectomy and like there'd be no telemetry, like you just mm -mm. you know send them home like a spay exactly right. Or 
if they were doing real bad, you'd send them to the local ER, but like they don't have telemetry, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. But like now if they, if they go to the specialist and they have this, every single patient will be on telemetry and you would be surprised the number that we then react to that uh, cardiac arrhythmia with drugs, the CRI, you know, that kind of thing. And so it just makes me wonder like how many of them were missed previously. Right. Mm-hmm. And ha- people tend to think of like, Splenectomy is a quote dangerous procedure. Makes me wonder back in the day how many of those died after surgery complications were not related to surgery but were related to arrhythmia. Again, that is not scientifically based, that is just my assessment. Mm-hmm. But I think liability wise, if you're in general practice and you're doing a splenectomy, you need to be making clients aware of like now your other option is to go to the specialist and here is the difference in the care that is provided. I'm not saying you shouldn't be doing splenectomies in private practice. I've done a lot of them. Okay. But you need to make sure the owner is making an informed choice about having the surgery with you versus Mm -hmm. someone else. And now I will step off of my soapbox Mm -hmm. again. We need to closely monitor all postoperative splenectomy patients so that appropriate therapy can be started ASAP if one of these uh, arrhythmias does develop. Most of the time, they're out of the danger zone for an arrhythmia within about 48 hours of surgery. So the prognosis for this is not good. It's pretty bad. It's poor. Right. Especially for dogs that are treated with splenic to be alone. The median survival time. Now, median survival time means like, Half the dogs survived longer than this, and half the dogs survived not even this long. Mm-hmm. Okay. The median survival time ranges from 19 to 86 days. Okay. So you're thinking about like 19 days is a couple of weeks, 86 days is a couple of months. Mm-hmm. So m- the median survival time is weeks to months. Yeah. If splenectomy is the only thing that is done. And perioperative mortality is high. That means like uh, surrounding surgery, mm-hmm. the chance of death is high. Mm-hmm. Yes, I was always had the pucker factor with monitoring those guys. Absolutely. Absolutely. And one of the reasons that the reported incidence of mortality in the perioperative period is high is because a lot of the time intraoperative euthanasia is performed. Mm-hmm. This would be, for example... You've taken x-rays of the chest. You don't see mets in the chest, but you open the dog. You are looking at everything and you see mets, you know, gross disease visible. You're going to scrub out a surgery, call the owner in a lot of those cases Mm -hmm. and ask what they want to do. Or hopefully you've even talked about it on the front end. Now, if I find this, how are you wanting me to proceed? You want me to proceed with surgery or, or do you want me to call you in we decide what else to do, euthanasia potentially, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's something else to to think about there. There was one study of dogs that had stage 3 hemangiosarcoma that were only treated with splenectomy, and the median survival time was about 40 days, so, you know, one month. And then in another study, dogs that had various stages of hemangiosarcoma reported a median survival time of 66 days with surgery alone. So if you add chemotherapy to the mix, how does that affect the prognosis? Well, it depends a lot on the type of chemotherapy that you select. And again, that's kind of outside the scope of this particular episode, but I hope we can provide more information about that soon. Overall, just a general statement, adding chemotherapy to the treatment 
regimen does improve median survival time. Like we talked about earlier, this is not something that we're like, oh, we have cured it. Median survival time is what we look at because these dogs invariably succumb to this illness. There are a number of studies that look at hemangiosarcoma survival times in dogs that have had surgery and various chemotherapy regimens. And I can post some links to those resources if you guys would like to read that. But again, I think without going into what every single drug is and what all these things mean, which we just don't have time for in one episode, I think that we should kind of leave it for people to research. So I'll just leave it with the general statement of, in general, chemotherapy improves median survival time. Definitive treatment for this illness, that means surgery and chemotherapy. Stage 1 tumors have a little bit better of a prognosis than stage 2. However, even when we're having chemotherapy with surgery, the one-year survival rate is less than 10%. Okay, so even if you do the surgery, you do chemotherapy, you've got less than a 10% chance of of the dog making it past a year. Having stage 3 hemangiosarcoma, as JJ talked about earlier, is a negative prognostic indicator. Other things that could be related to survival times, if you have a perioperative thrombocytopenia, like the dog in our study did, presented with thrombocytopenia, those guys tend to have shorter survival times. And then in one study, the mitotic index of the tumor, that's like um, a scale of how many dividing cells are present in the tumor. That's something that you would learn from the histopathology. It was not a prognostic factor in dogs undergoing splenectomy and uh, one type of chemotherapy. So that's really interesting because we Mm -hmm. typically think of mitotic index as like a, almost like a measurement of how aggressive a particular tumor is. And then in dogs with hemangiosarcoma, death is generally secondary to the metastatic lesions. As always, we will post uh, the references for this episode in the show notes and on social media. And if you guys have any questions about hemangiosarcoma or, you know, want to share your personal stories and things like that, we're happy to read them, too. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Okay. So the shark aquarium story. Okay. You know how if you're on, like, a sketchy website reading some article at the bottom, there'll be all these clickbait, like, mm-hmm. photos and stuff? Well, <laughs> they know how to get me. <laughs> so... Any type of weird, gross thing, I'm like, ooh, what the fuck is that? Mm -hmm. Any type of thing that's like, this found after this many years or whatever, like any type of thing like that, I'm going to click the shit out of that. (laughs) Anyway, so I was reading something and I got down to the sketchy clickbait article area and it was like a, this super scary fucking up close photo of like a rotting shark face and it was like zombie shark found this aquarium or whatever how do you not click on that first off that is just i would be tempted i mean come on so anyway it's less exciting than it sounds which i was really disappointed by i mean i am a veterinarian i don't know what i expected (laughs) zombies do not exist okay that is not a thing that is possible so what? why was I like, oh, this must be a real zombie? No, it's not. What the fuck? So it's like these photos from inside this abandoned aquarium. I know. Oh, gosh. Now, the shark was not left to die in the aquarium alone. Okay, because that was my second thing. So just go ahead and get that out of the way. 
this was like a preserved specimen that was on display at this aquarium. Oh, no. And that was abandoned. Mm. So it's like rotting at this point. And so, you know how people break into abandoned things all the time and take photos? What these up-close fucking gross photos of were of is the shark face, like, pressed up against the tank or whatever. And so it tells the story of them. And it's not very big. It's small. The photos make it look huge, but, like, it's, like, four feet. You know, it's (laughs) not huge. But, like, they're talking about, you know, going into this aquarium and, like, walking around and, like, looking at different stuff and everything like that. And they come up to this, as you were saying, like, a cloudy, gross (laughs) thing. And all of a sudden, this thing, like, floats up and goes clunk against the... You know, that was very scary, I'm sure. Ew. All of a sudden it was like, fish bites! Oh! <laughs> anyway. Yikes. It just made, it just reminded me of that clickbait article. So, <laughs> now I have described it to you all so that you don't have to click on You might have inspired article. many clicks. I just to be able to see the picture. I tried to pull up the flipping article about it. But it's so clickbaity that even me trying to pull up the article right now, it's just like ads, 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 Ugh. freezing, freezing. I'm having to like, anyway, it's really irritating. <laughs> oh, shit, JJ. Did you find it? Well, okay, now this one is different. Oh, no. So Maybe. now apparently there are more than one abandoned shark at Aquarium because the first one, the one that I originally saw, did not pull up. But the second one... This is fucking different. Look at this motherfucker. Very scary. There's got to be a catch, though. I mean, what the heck is this? And what? Abandoned aquariums? Like, gross. I don't know. That's something I don't understand. Why? If you're going to build something that huge and you have to, like, you know, unload it, just tear it down or something. I don't know. I don't know what I'm talking about, I'm sure. But it just bothers me whenever you drive by... Tons and tons and tons of these abandoned shopping areas. Mm, yeah. And then right next to them, they're putting another one up. Yeah, I don't understand it either. Like, it, or when one of these big box stores moves, mm-hmm. I don't want to name any particular names, but like, say, a common grocery store in this area, instead of just fucking redoing their thing, they build a whole fucking other one and move and leave this huge fucking warehouse mm-hmm. empty. That's going to be what? Nothing? Yep. Like, at least tear it down and put grasslands back, mm-hmm. you assholes. Anyway, yep. sorry, it makes me mad. Yeah, and I don't want to hear from the big companies that, well, it's, it costs too much. I'm like, you got plenty of money. Give back, homies. Give back. I would like to visit an abandoned amusement park. Would you? It just sounds... Oh, I don't... Like, there's apparently a Wizard of Oz-themed one. Yeah. And so it's like all overgrown, but the yellow brick road's still there. Oh, what the fuck? I'm like, that would be fun. You know, there are some old hospitals that are abandoned. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. There's some that are fairly local. Mm-hmm. Like some... Uh, Let's not name the name of it. Yeah. Okay. but you Psychiatric know, ones. Yes. Mm-hmm. We're going to have to clip that part out. Let's mm-hmm. just say special hospitals that are abandoned and that are in this geographic region that people break into and take photos of and put them on the internet and stuff. And it is fucking creepy. Do not do that. It is trespassing and you could die. Second shark article is really big. It's actually a 13-foot great white shark that was caught back in the 1980s. And it's sitting in a tank of formaldehyde in a a Melbourne abandoned aquarium. And it's just there. It's Jaws, man. 
So it's apparently been abandoned for more than a decade and it's just fucking sitting there. And the photos of that are like (laughs) really impressive. So now I'm disappointed that I didn't see this one in the clickbait (laughs) article. That was some bullshit. Anyway, if you have stories, questions, cases, or anything else you'd like for us to read, please send it to introvetspodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram, and it's at introverts. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. It really does help. Yes, please. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.